All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Um, we come again to this passage. I would invite you to join me out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7, and we will begin again at verse 1, reading through verse 5, focusing our attention on verse 4. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace and understanding. I pray that you would open wide our hearts and our minds to see your truth, And I pray, God, that you would challenge us in our complacency, that we would understand that always we are to be challenged by the word and that we are to be driven into it, Father, and that we are to trust it, to wrestle it out, to think deeply on it, God, to consider it always. And let the truth that you give us in your word shape us and change us according to your mercy and according to your glory. And we pray, God, that in this day you would grant to us wisdom to see your truth and to be changed by it. We ask it in Jesus' name, and for his glory we pray. Amen. So, we're going to focus our attention on this idea of consideration. We're told here in verse 4 to consider how great this man is. And we spent the last couple of weeks considering the greatness of Jesus, and considering the, this one this who came in the the person of Melchizedek, this pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, and to consider how great Jesus is, both in his office and in his duty. And last week we talked about his greatness towards us and his love. But it occurs to me that we're told four times in Hebrews to consider, to think deeply and clearly. And the idea is to urge us to diligently behold, to contemplate something or to look into the things proposed. Now, the writer is in the midst of returning to his original theme, the idea that Christ is superior over everything else. But I want to pause today to think with you about thinking, to consider with you about consideration, because deep and disciplined thought has become foreign to our age. In this time of parroting the rote arguments of the elite, any argument or even discourse will get you canceled, but Scripture calls us to approach knowledge differently. God invites us to think and to reason. In Isaiah 118, he urges us, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So implying for us that at least partly our intellect is involved in the process of salvation. Scripture tells us we have to believe what God says, and that requires us to challenge our thinking. It requires us to think and to examine what we believe and why. It's extremely difficult to divest people of their religious assumptions, their habits, or their pretensions. But truth alone can do it. 
We're often unprepared, however, for the violence with which truth assaults our castles. In Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. There is a holy wrestling, an obligation to fight for truth, which sometimes means having to have a fight with truth. It's, it's hard for us to do this, but sometimes we do have to fight with truth itself in order to understand it and to understand its implications. It's not an easy thing. And further, it's absolutely not comfortable. All the knowledge that shapes our world is impressive, but on the day of judgment, all of that knowledge will mean less than nothing. So we have to necessarily think deeply about what God says. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Now this also means that there are fundamental truths that must be understood. They must be obeyed, or everything else will mean nothing. God tells us that knowing him is the one thing that actually matters most. And that knowing him as he actually is, is the only thing that matters. Proverbs goes so far to tell us that in this alone is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So this morning we'll think together about thinking, and about how it impacts our lives. And I pray that God will bless and guide our considerations so that we are hearing him and not me. So the first thing we have to understand is that we have an obligation to think. I know it sounds strange to say this, but you are required by your God to engage your brain in the practice of following him. He expects you to think. Now, this is not something that's being taught in our schools. It's not something that's being taught in our culture. In fact, it's not something that's being accepted in our culture. The idea of independent thought is being frowned on and being curtailed and being damped down more and more and more. They want you to believe what the media says. They want you to believe what you're told. They want you to be quiet and just don't make any waves because in the end, a people that act in that way are easily controlled. That would be fine if the people who were controlling us were godly. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know, I have a problem with it anyway, but I digress slightly. Because God tells us that we are responsible to consider what he says. We're responsible to engage with what he says and to be changed by it and to wrestle it out regardless of what's going on around us. Throughout the whole history of scripture, throughout the whole history of mankind, there have been those who have stood against the rest of the world for the sake of what God has told them to do, for what God has told them to be, for what God has told them to believe. And that responsibility has not been lifted from us. That responsibility is still a part of what we do and what we are as the people of God. God does not permit us to simply sit down and do without thinking. He does not permit us to accept even good counsel without due consideration. Hear me. If you agree with everything I'm saying... And you, and you hear it and you begin to fall into the pattern of saying, well, pastor said it, therefore it must be true. You are in error. I pray that I never tell you anything that is untrue, but you are responsible to check out and verify every single thing I say according to the word of God. 
You are responsible to measure every word against the truth of God's word because that is the standard by which we measure truth. You have to do this. You have to be engaged in the process of thinking. You have to be engaged in the process of wrestling these things out, engaging your brain around the truth of God's word. And that means then that you have to believe that God's word is for you. It's not given for others necessarily. It does have application to others as well. But it's given for you. The fact that you're here hearing this at this moment means that God wants you to hear this. That makes sense? God wants you to understand what he's given me to share with you. Either to agree or not to agree, but to wrestle it out according to Scripture. To to approach it to say, Lord, you are speaking to me, and therefore the things that are being said have something to say to me. Now, dangerously, sometimes we are guilty of sitting in church and listening to the pastor say something and thinking to ourselves, boy, I'm glad he said that. I hope Robbie heard it. If you're honest with yourself, you'll know you've had those thoughts, maybe not about Robbie, but about somebody. That's a misuse of God's word. That's a misuse of this time. And it's something that we have to wrestle out. We have to understand that when God says something, he's saying it to you. Now, there is application for others, which is your obligation to carry the truth. But the fact that you're here hearing it means that God is speaking to you. And if you misapprehend this, if you think that God doesn't necessarily speak to you, it's going to leave you, at best, spiritually stunted. You will be dwarfed all of your life by the people around you who actually believe that God speaks to them and they are growing in the truth that God is giving. If if you're not engaged in this process, if you're not looking to see what God is saying and to actually consider it as something for your life, you will not grow as you otherwise should. Because God is speaking to you and He is speaking to you in words that will change your life. Now, this also is important for us to wrestle out in regards to why we listen. It's not enough to listen to the Word of God so that we can be moral. Moralism is a failure to understand what God is saying. Moralism says, here's your list of rules. Do the things that are right. Do the things that are good. You'll please God. You'll get along with man. And everything will be right in your life. You cannot engage with God's Word simply to be moral. Because this is an effort to diminish the power and the glory of God's Word. You have to resist every effort to simply make the Bible a set of moral tales. You want morality tales? Well, that's fine. Read Aesop's fables. You want morality tales? Pay attention to the world around you. There's plenty of them being lived out in real time on social media. We can see the ruin of people who live their lives according to the standards of the world. Pretty simple. But the truth of the Scripture is far more than just a set of moral tales. The truth of Scripture is the very message of God for about how He communicates life to the people that He has chosen to communicate life to. The message of Scripture is the message of God's work among His people for the purpose of glorifying the person of Christ. The message of Scripture is the glory of God being displayed in the fullest possible sense. 
And it goes so far beyond a set of moral tales that we don't really comprehend the distinctions that are being made if we don't think about it. Because when you take the Bible and you make it simply a set of moral tales, what you do is you rob it of its power. You make it simply something that somebody can look at and go, oh, that's a really good idea. And you remove God from the picture entirely. You make it about man instead of about God. And ultimately, the Bible is first and foremost about God. It is the revelation of God's nature. It is the revelation of God's character. It is the revelation of God's truth. And it is the revelation of God's will for his creation. Yes, it affects us. But it is not primarily about us. It is primarily about the God who is calling us to himself. It is the very truth of God unto salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Turn there if you would. 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 14. You must continue in the things of which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. I'm going to say that again. From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what we see is that the Scripture itself is given to us for a purpose. It's given to us for the purpose of transformation. It's given to us for the purpose of the change that God wrought in our lives to make us acceptable to Him. It's given for the purpose that we might know the God who saves us. But it's also equally clear that God tells us that His Word will and should alter our lives. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 5. I want to show you some things that God says here. Jeremiah chapter 5, starting at verse 7, God says this, How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those that are not gods when I had fed them to the full. Then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. They were like well-fed lusty stallions and everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? So what's God's point? His point is that they have been given the truth and that rather than listening to the truth and obeying the truth, they regarded it as something to be held merely as intellectual and were living their lives in accordance to their own desires, not hindering their lusts and not stopping themselves from doing anything that God said don't do, simply because it's what they wanted to do. And the question that God asks at the end of that passage is, shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? In other words, when God moves to judge a nation, it's because that nation has offended him. Now, this is a very poignant part of something that we need to understand for this day and age and for this nation. Make no mistake, the things that are being force-fed to the nation as good and acceptable and prescribed are an offense to a holy God. God is not neutral on the question of abortion. God is not neutral on the question of homosexuality. God is not neutral on the question of transgenderism. God is not neutral on the question of children being 
sold into sexual slavery and every other vile thing that's being done. God is not neutral on any of these things that our nation is giving itself over to rabidly. And the question stands, shall I not avenge myself on such a people as this? The answer is, he just might. And the only people who have the answer to that is the church. But if we're complacent, if we're not even engaging in the questions, if we're not even engaging our brains to look at the world around us and say, Lord, how do we engage with this culture to stop the madness? If we simply live for our own comfort and live for our own desires and live for our own pleasures, shall I not avenge myself on a people such as this? He might. And the church itself might be a part of the people who are being avenged upon. Skip down a couple more verses. Jeremiah 5, starting at verse 11. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, It is not he, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. And thus it shall be done to them. So there is a responsibility which is being poured out upon the people who have the truth but deny it. There are so many churches in this land today that are refusing to engage with what God says and simply breathing out peace upon the earth and simply breathing out, oh, it's okay, God doesn't mind. You love who you want, you do what you want, you live how you want, God's okay with it all. But the truth is, God's not okay with any of it. And God will call every single sin to an account. And he will bring out justice in the end. And he will avenge himself, either now or in the age to come, upon a people such as this. Beloved, our message must be a message of truth. Now, the reason why this becomes difficult for us is that sometimes the message of truth that we are to proclaim to other people has implications for the way that we ourselves want to live. Because God is not gray about anything. God is a God of absolutes. He is a God of his law and his truth. And grace does not preclude his law. Grace does not say, well, it's okay, you're saved, do what you want. That's not the message of grace. That's how the message of grace is perverted in this age. But grace changes us so that we are more enabled to live in a way that pleases God. It changes our desires. It changes our very wants so that what we desire is more in alignment with what God himself loves. That's why our lives as Christians look different from the rest of the world. It's not because we're trying to earn God's favor. It's because God has already favored us with his presence. He's already favored us with his grace. He's already favored us with himself. And he's transforming us and changing us so that our lives begin to look more like him. Now, in the end, when a church will not engage in the process of looking at our own lives, when the people of God will not engage in this and think about it and say, okay, Lord, I understand these things are going on. What's my responsibility? How am I to wrestle this out? How am I to engage with this? How am I to carry the message? How am I to see my own sin and my own failing as contributing to the problem? And how might I repent so that my repentance might transform others? Those are questions we have to be asking. These are questions we have to be wrestling out. Because the word of God is supposed to change us. And lying about God and saying, God's okay with it all, don't really worry about it, that's not the right answer. Even though it may be politically correct to tell somebody, whatever you want to do is okay with God, he doesn't mind. Understand that politically correct isn't. 
It's absolutely incorrect. It's a lie. And for us as Christians, we should have nothing to do with lies except declare them as lies and speak the truth into them. But we need to be very careful that when God speaks to us, we consider the implications of it. We consider what God's saying to us, what God is saying about us, what God is calling us unto, and what God is calling us out of, so that we might declare His truth to the people around us. Because they stand under the judgment of God, and if we will not answer and will not speak the truth, we also stand under the judgment of God. It doesn't end there. Chapter 5, verse 26. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie and wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause of the fatherless. Yes, they prosper. And the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? So it goes worse than just us lying about God. According to Scripture, we are sometimes actively engaged in the very wickedness that's going on around us. Skip down to chapter 9 of Jeremiah, verse 8. Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Let me speak honestly to you. What's he talking about here? He's talking about duplicity in your relationships with one another. He's talking about the kind of gossipy, heresy, ickiness that tends to mark our interpersonal relationships. I'll be very nice to your face, but when you're not around me, i got nothing but bad to say about you. Beloved, hear this. This is something that offends God. This is something that God will not permit and will not allow to stand unchecked in His people. We need to be careful about how we speak to each other, about how we speak about each other, and about how we speak about everybody. Here's a good rule of thumb. If you wouldn't say it to their face, don't say it. If you wouldn't say exactly what you're saying about them to them, then keep your mouth closed. You have no call to be speaking things about somebody that you won't speak to them. And let me amend that just a little bit and say that doesn't give you permission to go be a brute to somebody just because you don't like them. Let your speech be seasoned with grace and salt, we're told in Ephesians chapter 4, not tearing people down, but instead building them up. Change the way you consider your words, because here's what you need to be engaging with. God considers your words. He thinks about the things that you say. And one day, he will bring every word to an account to you, and you will give answer for them. So be careful what you say. Be careful how you speak about people. Be careful how you speak to people. Be careful what you say. See, this is the idea, and this is just one small way in which the Word of God should begin to challenge us and change us. It should begin to make our lives look differently, but it requires us to actually be thinking. 
It requires us to actually be engaging with it and wrestling it out and saying, okay, how, how do I take the Word of God and apply it in my life? How do I lay bare my soul and say, Lord, show me what needs to be changed and change it? Because this is the process of, of following after Christ. It requires us to think and it requires us to obey. So how do we do this? Well, first of all, delight in the truth and in the beauty of God's Word. You see, part of the thing that we, that we wrestle with is the idea that many times we approach time in God's Word as a duty or an obligation. I have to read my Bible now. But it doesn't bring us any joy. It doesn't bring us any pleasure. We don't delight in it. Instead, we just do it. Now, I, I have been heard to say, and I'm, I'll say it again, sometimes you just have to fake it till you make it because there will be seasons in your life where you don't really feel the joy. And doing what God tells you to do out of obedience and saying, Lord, I want to honor you, and I'm just not feeling it right now. Please help me. And then doing what you're supposed to do is something that God will reward. It's something that God will pour out grace on, and he will carry you through that. Those seasons of change and those seasons of alteration in your, of your feelings and time in the desert, all of these things are important for us. Because in the manner in which God has created the world, we need those things to grow. But... Here's the thing. If you find the things of God boring as a rule, you're never going to attend to them. Right? If you look at this and you go, oh, man, I hate reading the Bible. I hate this. This is so boring. How much time and attention are you going to give to it? None. You'll give only what somebody forces you to. And even then, since it's grudging, you're not going to draw the good from it that you need to. So check your hearts. Check your minds. Ask yourself, what's my attitude towards the things of God? Because if you find the things of God off-putting, you will avoid them. If you find the things of God contrary to your desire, you will only come close enough to God to have some false assurance of your soul. And then you'll run back to your sin like a dog to its vomit. Mere intellectual investigation also does not suffice. Idle curiosity will always warp truth into something monstrous. It's important for us to recognize the fact that we can do these things in a way that is not honoring. So, we need to be careful to delight ourselves in the things of God and find Him sustaining our heart and mind through those difficulties. Know that He is changing our character even as He is changing our mind. That's the fake it till you make it bit. But your heart has to be, Lord, alter me, change me, help me as I read your word, be transformed by your word. If you approach it saying, okay, God, I'm going to read your Bible because you tell me to, but let me tell you the truth, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> you're not going to get much good out of it. It's not going to do a whole lot to, to grow you in grace because you're approaching it with the idea of rebellion at your core. We have to think about this. We have to ask ourselves these questions. We have to engage with these things. We have to study and meditate and pray along with every other appointed means that God gives us, and these things are necessary for our growth. So what are some other means that God has given us to wrestle with his word, to think on it, to dwell on it, to grow by it? Well, memorization, top of the list. Memorize scripture. I know you can't memorize anything. Fooey. You can. You memorize all kinds of things. You just don't. 
So set yourself to memorize Scripture. A really simple, easy pattern to do it, to, to actually attach verses. We, um, I heard it in summer camp this year. I'd never heard this approach before, but man, it's solid. Take a verse or two of Scripture that you want to memorize. And for a week, Monday or morning and evening, read it out loud five times. Don't do anything else. Don't try to memorize it. Just read those two verses out loud five times in the morning, five times at night. Do that for a week. By the time Saturday rolls around, what you will find is that constant repetition of that word of God. You're feeling like, you know, I can almost get through this. And you will make the attempt. And you will find that most of it is already hidden in your heart. Take Saturday as you go through it several times. Take Sunday as you go through it several times. And you will find that those things are there. Now, you'll need to review them because what you don't review and what you don't constantly work on will go away. It's just the way these things are. But you will find that rather than sitting there and just grinding it out and forcing yourself little by little by little, one word at a time, that method actually works pretty solid. Give it an effort. Find that if you memorize Scripture and you approach it with the idea of hiding it in your heart, the word itself says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The scripture becomes a guard for our lives. It becomes something that is stored up inside of you so that in your moments of trial, in your moments of temptation, you have something to draw on other than the garbage that the world is constantly force-feeding. It also gives you something to ponder for the next thing that God gives you to help you grow, which is meditation. The idea of scriptural meditation is to take something that is inside of you and to bring it forth, to actually bring it up and and think it over and look at the implications and dwell on it. And you don't have to have a Bible open in front of you to meditate if you have already memorized because you have a Bible open inside of you. You can think on what God has said. You can think on the words that he has planted in your life. You can find that those things are actually bearing fruit in how you dwell among the people that you live with. This brings us to fellowship. Understand that God has given the body of Christ as a vehicle for your sanctification. It's something that God has given, something that you need. You need to be involved in a local body of Christ, actively participating in life with other believers so that they help aim you at Christ. A man who isolates himself rages against all sound judgment, Proverbs says. So when you cut yourself off from the people around you, you are actively raging against wisdom and sound judgment. You're telling God, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm done. And you may still feel like, hey, I'm out there talking to God. I got my God. I go to the lake and we talk. That's all well and good. You can do that as well. But beloved, hear me. You need the body around you. You need the body as a hedge and as a fence to hold you and to to give you some accountability and to give you some guidance and to give you some wisdom and to give you some understanding. And more than that, the body needs you. The body needs you to give them those things as well. Because the next aspect that God has given to us to think about and to engage with his word is our active obedience. It's not enough to simply hear the truth. It will not do it alone. We need the application of what God has given us, and we need people to hold us accountable to that application. 
So we need to have relationships in the body whereby we might say to somebody, look, I'm struggling with this. Please pray for me. Please check in with me. Please hold me accountable. Please help me grow in this area. I'm really wrestling with whatever it is. That's a purpose of fellowship, and that's a purpose of obedience, and that's a purpose of accountability that God will bless and nourish in our lives. And then exercise known truth. Practice what you know and practice what you've already got. Okay? Sometimes we spend so much time focusing on the new things that we neglect the old things. And like I said about memorization, if you don't pay attention to what you already have, you'll lose it. The same thing is true with godly practice. Make sure that you are exercising known truth. Make sure that you are doing the things that you are called to do that God has already wrestled out in your soul. Now, all of this seems like a lot, and I'll grant you in some ways it is. But think about all the things in your life that you juggle mentally and all the things that you, that you do at work and all the things that you do in your hobbies and all the things that you do in your side jobs, all the things that you do in all of your side hustles and all of your other things, and think about how many things you juggle at once to make those things happen. Isn't your faith and following after Christ worth that same level of effort at least? Is it worth more? Probably. Okay, yes. <laughs> See, we, we make excuses for ourselves when it comes to following after Christ. We make excuses for ourselves when it comes to our obedience to our God. But we'll do whatever it takes to make sure our things happen. We'll move heaven and earth to make sure that the things that are in our world that we want to see done are done. And those words themselves become very condemning when somebody points out to us what we're not doing. And they should. For us as followers of Christ, this needs to be the very priority of our lives. We need to be thinking about these things. Now, it's also important that we understand that the Word of God challenges our assumptions about God. There are perhaps no more dangerous words than everybody knows this. (laughs) Because the things that you know, you just know, They're seldom true. And the things that everybody knows, they're usually even worse. It's also dangerous to consider what we have always done because then we find we do things without reason. We find that we do things without thought. We need to be attentive to make certain that the things that we do and the things that we give ourselves to are derived from Scripture, that they are thoughtfully inspected and thoughtfully carried out according to the will and the word of God. You don't just get to make up your life according to your own desires. God will fashion your desires in you for the things that he has fit you to do. But he will give birth to those desires through his word. He will give give fruit to those desires through the truth of his word. And he will grant to you life as you live this out in the way that he causes your life to grow in accordance to his word. So make certain that you weigh everything that you do and everything that you think, both in your desires and your life, but more importantly, as you think about the things of God, make sure that you do it and you weigh it according to the truth of God's Word. Now, this is really difficult for us sometimes, because sometimes the things that we just know, they're contrary to Scripture. It's what we've always heard. It's what we've always been told. It seems logical to us. It seems clear to us. But it's not truth. 
I made the statement in Bible study yesterday morning that God intended the fall for the purpose of redemption. And I got pushback later in the day from one of the people who joined us remotely. And, and the conversation went on quite a few exchanges. And he was just certain that I had misspoken and that I hadn't really mean to say what I said. And no, that's exactly what I meant. And I gave him several scriptures that supported it. And he said, no, I, I just think, I'm, no, no, I think you're misspeaking. No, I'm not. And, and what you think about it doesn't change the fact that this is what God's word says. We have to engage with what God's word says and allow it to challenge our assumptions and challenge our inherent beliefs. We have to know that what God says, God means. And I don't need to defend Scripture from itself. I don't need to defend God from His Word. I need to examine His Word and examine my life and examine my assumptions and let His Word form my assumptions. Let His Word form my beliefs. Let His Word form my practice. Let what God says change everything. And here's the truth. When you begin to do that, God's Word will change everything. It will alter your life, and it will alter your relationships, and it will alter your practice in every way. We let everything that happens grow out of the Word of God. So all of the carefully constructed logical edifices of the world do not outweigh one single plain statement of Scripture. And and, and we find this constantly being argued in the context of the cultural battles that are raging around us. People will build these carefully constructed logical arguments. And this means this, and this means this, and they assert this, and they state this, and they assume this, and they presume that. But in the end, God simply says, I have said this. And that's all there is. And when God's truth speaks against those things, it doesn't matter how desperately people want to believe them. They're still believing lies. We have to hold to the truth of what God's word says. Hard truth can be a very difficult thing to grapple with, especially when it challenges those dearly dearly held assumptions and beliefs. For instance, somebody being converted out of a family history of Catholicism not only grapples with the condition of their own soul, they also grapple at some point or another with the knowledge that if this is true, then my parents and my grandparents and my family and all the other people that I love are either deceived or already in hell. And that's a hard thing for people to wrestle out. It's actually one of the things that keeps many people from engaging with Christ out of that tradition because of the traditions that have already gone before. Now, here's what you need to recognize. That's not exclusive to them. It's going to confront all of you because every single one of us have some assumptions that we bring to the table. Every single one of us has some things that we've always believed, and it's what we've always been told, and it's how we've always seen the world. And if we push it away because it doesn't fit comfortably in our mind, we're not being faithful to God. God calls us to let his word shape our thinking. But that also means that our thinking has to be engaged in how his word teaches us. It's going to be challenging, and it's going to be painful, and there's going to be times and places where the things that God says are are hard to get your head around. Because none of us likes being told that we're wrong. None of us likes coming to the knowledge that we have been foolish or that we have been deceived. The work of changing your mind on these things is often slow, usually painful, and almost always opposed on many, many fronts. 
It's because truth is singular in nature. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. If they're true, they're true. And we meet on the ground of truth. We do not call the ground of truth to satisfy each of us individually. We have to have the common ground of God's truth where we come together and truth. Because truth is not defined by the hearer. Truth is an absolute in the whole of the universe. It is defined by the creator. It's defined by God himself. God says what is true, and God says what is a lie. Truth is something that is consistent with God's nature, with God's creation, with his character, with his will, with his purpose, with his word, which is the revelation of all of those things. And therefore, truth is not negotiable. It cannot and it will not be changed. Truth, by definition, is always true. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of opinion, regardless of anything else. And beloved, if you're thinking with me, you know this is a challenging idea to a world that doesn't believe in absolute truth. You know this is a challenging idea, and you know that when you speak about truth, and people understand correctly that you're talking about truth with a capital T, that most of them go, oh, oh, those Christians. Well, there is an absolute truth, and it comes with a capital T, because it's not defined by me. It's defined by God. Gravity is one essential truth of the physical known universe, and you can pretend all you want that it doesn't exist. But if you step off the roof of the church, you're going to hurt yourself at the very least. You can deny gravity, but you cannot deny its effects. And you can deny truth, but you cannot deny its effects. Truth is real. And truth is the ground that God himself has defined and established. Now, our understanding about truth can change. And those changes demonstrate that we do not even now fully understand. So if you don't leave some room in your thinking for human error, if you don't leave some room in your thinking for the possibility that you may be misunderstanding something that God says, you're asking for very difficult lessons down the road. Now, I've been through those lessons both easy and hard, and I would rather get them easy than hard. But you guys can do what you want. (laughs) I would encourage you, however, to leave some room in your thinking for the fact that we don't have this 100% right. Nobody does. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not convinced that what I'm telling you is truth according to God's word. If, if I'm not convinced it's true, I'll make sure to tell you, well, this is what I think, but I'm not sure. I promise. I'll always do that. But the heart of the matter is this. What I'm convinced of is how I understand the world and is how I understand the truth of God, and I will declare it as the very truth of God. And if I'm wrong, I will repent of it later. But that's the balance we have to strike. I have to recognize the truth that I'm human and that I'm fallible and that I can sometimes get these things wrong. But I also have to believe that what I understand truth to be, I'm responsible for at the time that I understand it. I'm responsible to declare it. I'm responsible to speak and to teach the truth as God has revealed it to me. Period. I don't get to waffle on it and go, well, you know, other people think other things. Because if it's truth, then it's truth. And if I'm wrong, 
then I'm wrong. For all of us, this is a tension we have to seek to understand. We have to seek to balance out this tension. But we have to do it with confidence, not in us, but in the God who speaks truth. Here's the old wisdom, and I find great comfort in it. God can strike true with a crooked stick. That means that even if I get it wrong, God can still speak to you. And God can still make sure that you hear exactly what you're supposed to hear. I can't tell you how many hundreds, probably even thousands of times after a sermon, somebody will say, man, I really appreciated it when you said, and I go, I said that? I don't think I said that. (laughs) And what, what they're saying they heard isn't wrong. It's not something I would disagree with. I just don't think I said it. But God did, and that's okay. I'm always amazed that God uses anything I do or say. It, it, It just never fails to astound me that God can make some use out of me. I'm grateful for it. I'm humbled by it. I want you to hear this, and I want you to do this, because My job as your pastor is not to do the work of ministry, but to equip you, the saints, for the work of the ministry so that you would have an impact for the kingdom in your circles of influence and among your friends and among your family and among your neighbors. So if you're approaching it with an arrogant stance that says, I'm absolutely right regardless of anything else, you've got a problem. You need to be confident of the truth, but not confident in you. I guess that's maybe the best way to put it. We have to wrestle these things out, because our understanding can change. When our knowledge is confronted by the communication of Scripture, then, our position must be altered. God will never say to anybody, yep, I see what you're thinking there, that's okay. God's never going to say to anybody, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all your heart. Those things are not scriptural. They're not truth. They don't represent the God who is. The only God who says such things has a little g and his real name is Satan. Because what you believe means everything. What you believe tells the world what you believe about the God who called you. It's not acceptable for us to ever deny the plain truth of Scripture for the sake of our personal comfort. It's not ever acceptable for us to deny the plain truth of Scripture. (laughs) But especially when it's for our own comfort. Oh, I don't like that idea. It makes me very nervous. I don't know how to settle my heart with a God who would do that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, well, my God would never do that. Well, clearly your God wouldn't. Maybe you should investigate the real God. Because God of the Bible tells us who he is and what he will and will not do. And he's unapologetic about it. He owes nobody anything. And he is always calling his people to grow in grace and grow in knowledge of him and to glory in the fact that we know and understand him. Not him as we want him to be, but him as he actually is. 
Remember I said there are really hard things that have to be negotiated and have to be understood and have to be gotten right because what you believe actually matters. Sometimes you have to engage with the things that you have assumed and it hurts when you have to let them go. And while we have to consider that we may have been wrong to investigate and challenge fundamentally beliefs, fundamentally held beliefs, we also have to fight for those same things when the challenges are merely trends or arrogance that says we must change for the sake of change. When you're talking to the culture and they're saying, well, that's old religion. You guys need to advance and be with the age. That's not the kind of challenging that we need to yield to. We need to yield our assumptions when Scripture challenges our assumptions, not when the culture does. But I say this. It's good for us to examine our assumptions in light of Scripture when when the culture raises the question. Why is homosexuality wrong, for instance? Why? Well, because God made male and female, and God defined how we were to interact, and he invented marriage for the sake of a man and a woman and their progeny. That's what it's for at its core. And I understand that sometimes people can't have children or don't have children or whatever. That's not to say your marriage is invalid. But when God designed it, he designed it so that a man and a woman would produce offspring. And particularly, they would produce godly offspring. The church grows by induction and by conception. (laughs) You bring people in and you produce people. There's more than one way to grow a church. Okay, And for us as followers of Christ, if we don't think these things through and we don't wrestle this out, then the question is diluted away from what was God's intention to, well, who am I to tell him who he can love? Which is how it's phrased in the culture. Who am I to tell somebody else who they can love? Well, I'm not anybody to tell them that. But God himself has set some parameters that they ought to be aware of. Because they will give answer for the things that they do according to God's word. It's important for us as followers of Christ to think about these things, to engage with them. And intellectual honesty is absolutely required. We have to be earnest in it. And we have to be earnest in it as we deal with culture, but we also have to be earnest in it as we deal with ourselves. So I want to think with you really quickly, just looking forward to where we're going from here. The writer of Hebrews is coming back to his original intention. He's coming back to challenge the Hebrew people about who they value most. So all these things about how we think and how we engage and how we deal with our assumptions, they're kind of contained inside of what's coming up next. The idea that all the Hebrews had been leaning on their heritage as the descent of Abraham for a really long time. They had been trusting in the Levitical priesthood for a really long time. And if you recall, way back three years ago, four years ago when we started Hebrews, we said that the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ to the Old Testament structure of the law. And it's unpacked in a lot of different ways. And we're coming to Christ's superiority over the priesthood. Okay? So the writer of Hebrews is challenging the the readers to have their assumptions challenged. 
Because if they don't get this right, if they don't consider Christ for who He is, that Christ is greater than the traditions of the Father and the priesthood that's been given through the law, that Christ is the greater priesthood, if they don't wrestle this out, then they will not have the ability to lay hold of Christ as He should be laid hold of. One of two things is going to happen. They're either going to reject Him out of hand, or they're going to try their dead-level best to bring the old priesthood into the religion of the new church and to somehow subsume them together and say, well, it's a hybrid sort of thing. And if you've ever read the book of Galatians, you actually come to grips with the fact that both of those things happened. Because the Hebrew people did not get this right consistently. So the writer of Hebrews is challenging them. Look, I want you to think about your assumptions. I want you to have your mind altered by the word of God, by the truth of God, by the things that God has said and God has revealed, and by the truth of his son Christ, who is the definition of the truth of God. I want your mind to be expanded to understand what God has said, regardless of what you have thought. He's been on a side trail for quite a while, but the challenge is real. And the Jewish readers have to wrestle with this uncomfortable truth. Their beloved traditions will not suffice. They have to accept the greater priesthood of Christ, and they have to accept the fact that the old priesthood has been ended. This is the chief of those fundamental truths that we alluded to earlier. Christ alone is the heart and the soul of the Scripture. Now, a couple of things I want to say about that. If somebody is opposed to the truth of the Scripture being the end-all, be-all of every definition, it is pointless to declare the gospel to them. They need the law. The law will break us under the weight of its truth. The gospel is for those who have been broken by the law. That's why the Scripture says the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. Does that make sense? You can't declare the gospel to somebody who has no knowledge of the law. You can't declare the gospel to somebody who has no knowledge of their need for the gospel. Somebody who's still standing in the arrogance of their assumptions, I'm fine with God and God should be fine with me because I'm pretty wonderful. That person's not going to hear the gospel. They're not going to engage with it intellectually. They're not going to understand it. They're not even going to be able to see it. They need the law. They need to be broken by the law. They need to have their hearts and their minds laid bare. That's why the scripture tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's when the law comes to bear upon us that we're broken open under it and God changes us so that we see our sin for what it is and we cry for mercy and say, oh God, please have mercy. That's where the gospel comes in and the soothing grace and the balm of the, of the, of the, of the glory of Christ begins to change us and, and make us new. That happens in us when the law has done its work. But those who will cling only to what they know, only what they think, only what they have been told, they're not going to be won by simply urging Christ upon them without any context at all. We need the context of the law of God. We need the context of His truth. We need the context of the fact that the God of the Bible has not ever changed. We, we don't serve a God who is, who is two different gods, a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. 
And for many people, that's how it appears because they've never taken the time to look. They've never taken the time to think. And no Christian has ever taken the time to wrestle it out and think it out and talk to them about it. But the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New. And he deals with us in exactly the same personal character of who he is. He's never changed. And the reason why the mercy and the glory and the beauty of Christ is so spectacular is because the law remains the law. The moral law of God is absolute and it never changes. It is exactly the same and it is exactly true. And that's a message that many Christians need to hear as well. Because many who name the name of Christ are playing this little game where they go, well, don't be all legalistic with me and don't tell me what I ought to do and don't tell me how I ought to live. That's the law. I'm under grace. I can do what I want. Well, you you can do what you want, but if you're truly converted, you'll want to do what God says. It's pretty straightforward. We obey because we love Him. We obey because He is who He is, and He's given us eyes to behold Him in His beauty, and we can't think of anything that we want more than pleasing Him. It's also important for us to understand that grace is secondary to truth. We're warned to be diligent about being active in thinking about the things of God and not to give ourselves over to sloth in regards to these things. God gives us grace. He gives us himself in a message of grace. But grace does not alter truth. That's what I mean when I say grace is secondary to truth. Grace serves truth. It doesn't change it. It doesn't alter who God is or what God has said ever. It doesn't alter his word. It doesn't alter his will. It doesn't alter his purpose. God will never accept our sincerity in the face of his truth and say, okay. Grace serves truth. Sincerely believing in a lie makes you sincerely long. Wrong. You're just wrong. And you can be sincere about it all you want, but you're still wrong. I can believe that I am a monkey. And I can demand that you call me a monkey. And I can demand that you buy me Purina monkey chow and feed me Purina monkey chow. But it doesn't change the fact that I am not a monkey. And I can sincerely believe that but it doesn't change it. You can sincerely believe that God doesn't care about his truth and all you will be is sincerely damned. And that's a hard thing to tell people, but it's something they need to hear. The burden of my heart for us is that we aim and secure everything that we do to the truth of God's word and nothing else. We have to go through the process always of examining what we believe and why we believe it in light of the truth of God's word. God's word is worth the effort. His truth is worth the effort. 
And the knowledge of Christ is always worth the effort. For us as Christians, this should be a challenge, but it should be a challenge that is exciting rather than burdensome. It should be a challenge that lifts our spirits and lifts our eyes towards heaven and helps us understand and see that the God who calls us out delights in us knowing him. He delights in that fellowship that he's given us with him. But that fellowship is based and rooted in the ground of his truth. And if we don't understand that that requires us to think and to change and to engage and to be transformed by that truth, then our arrogance itself is what blinds us. We need God to change us, always. And the wonder of it is, God knows that, and God will do that. He will change his people, and he will transform us into the likeness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace, and I pray, Lord, that in the midst of all of these many words, You would grant truth to us and grant understanding to us, Father, so that we might walk in the grace that's been given to us. Father, I thank you that you yourself never change. And I thank you, God, that as you call us to understand your truth, you also equip us to understand it. Help us know and help us obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.